first is to just really humbly ask, what is it like to be a female leader in our church? And try to just really listen to what she's saying. I have a feeling most of us would be surprised at the journey that a lot of our women leaders who have great capacity experience in our churches. We're excited to crack open another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. We've got another good one for you today. But before we get started with our guest, we just want to remind you to share this episode. If there's somebody who you feel like this will be helpful to their life or leadership, or just that they'll resonate with it, go ahead and share that with them. Take a screenshot, a text, share it on social media. That'd be super helpful. Secondly, follow us on Instagram. Go to Stay Forth Designs on Instagram. We have some new things we're going to be releasing and you're going to want to be part of that. Today's topic is crucial. We need to talk about females and leadership today. Everyone seems to be talking about this conversation and honestly, we need to. And what I love about my interview with Katie is that she is helpful and practical. She doesn't come from a perspective that is condemning. And so if you're a man wondering, oh man, should I listen to this? Is this going to be one more condemning podcast about how we haven't done a good job? No, this is a helpful, practical look at how we as male leaders can be helpful to female leaders around us, raising them up to their God-given influence. And Katie gives me some thoughts that I had never actually pondered before. So this was very helpful. I read her book, Developing Female Leaders. Loved having this conversation with Katie. And if you're a man, I just want to challenge you to lean into this. There are three or four things from this that I will apply directly to my leadership based on things that she said, based on suggestions, things we could do in our organization. And truthfully, this is an issue that today we need to continue to get better at. As males, myself included in that, we need to get better at intentionally developing female leaders. If you're female listening to this, I hope this is encouraging, affirming, this resonates, and I would encourage you to pick up her book, Developing Female Leaders, if you are a leader of any kind. So sit back, enjoy. Males, I want to encourage you to lean in for this conversation with Katie Cole. Guys, this is a really important episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. We've got Katie Cole joining us on the podcast today. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, we're glad you've given up uh, some of your time to be with us today, but I know you gave up a lot of your time to invest in your book. And we're going to be talking about your book today, Developing Female Leaders. And I absolutely love kind of the posture that you're coming from, as well as a lot of the practical uh, not even just solutions, but practical ideas, practical realities of, of where we're at. And we'll be kind of talking about some of that bridging the gap between where we are with desiring to develop female leaders and actually doing it is a lot of what I heard from the book. So I'm loving your book, excited to, to jump into that. But first of all, why don't you just share a little bit about your leadership over the years, some of the experiences that you've gotten to be part of? Sure. Thank you. I have a really eclectic way of getting into ministry leadership. I actually started out with a nursing degree and I'm a registered nurse and worked for quite a few years in a hospital setting and eventually at a college. And at that college, I ended up taking on more leadership and eventually became Dean of Student Development. So overseeing residential life and the discipline system and campus programming, I picked up a master's degree in human resource development and had a wonderful time leading in that really strong college-based 
faith-based young leader environment. But at the same time, my husband and I were attending a fast-growing church here in South Florida. And so uh, they eventually uh, recruited me to come on their team as sort of an assistant to the executive team, to the senior and executive pastor, and just trying to help scale our church for growth. We ended up going multi-site in that time. Um, And so I was around a lot of different projects, did a lot of different leadership-based kinds of work. And uh, my final role on the team was executive director over multi-site, overseeing our six uh, campuses at the time I was there. And also started our school of leadership. And then three years ago, decided to make a life pivot and uh, started my own leadership development company. I work a lot with organizations like Leadership Network. I do a lot of consulting with businesses and multi-site churches and have really just enjoyed that and now have this book project, which launched just a couple months ago. So it's been a really fun and exciting ministry journey and ride. And I'm looking forward to, you know, what God has next for me as well. Awesome. Sounds like it. You've been up to a lot, and I can hear that in the pages of of this book, and I really hear your heart for the church and for the church to be not only a more nurturing place for females, but to launch females into their God-given capacity. We had Jenny Katrin uh, on the book with Clout, and you you guys, just with such similar messages, we really need to do a better job of developing and calling women into... um, they're gifting, they're wiring, they're God-given calling. And so this was kind of part encouraging for me reading this book and part convicting. And I'm excited to, to share this as well with our team. So early on in the book, Katie, you talk about the challenges of developing female leaders. Can you share a few of those key or keystone challenges that we face in developing female leaders within the local church? Well, I am very passionate about uh, local church ministry and our churches being as effective as possible, especially on the front lines in communities. And I think one of the challenges that I see being most prevalent when it comes to female leaders is that most of the women who are mature believers, who have been in church for a long time, been in your church for a long time, know your DNA that you would really want to use in leadership. A strange thing happens for women who've grown up in church. And part of this is sort of our cultural norms. Part of this is uh, sort of the traditions that have been handed down to us in church environments. But many of those great, qualified, gifted leaders tend to hold back from volunteering or putting their name in or going for any sort of leadership role, Uh, even sort of despite our theological differences, they kind of, uh, most women leaders know there is some sort of line that they don't want to cross in terms of what they can lead or not lead. And most churches, unfortunately, haven't done a really great job clarifying where that theological line is. So a lot of great female leaders sort of live way below their ministry capacity because they don't want to overstep. And so one of the suggestions I make in the book is for leaders to do a little better job really defining their uh, belief system and what they want women to be involved in and what they want them to lead and take charge of. There's usually way more things that they think women can and should be a part of than what women are currently doing. And so uh, that tends to be one of the biggest limiters is just information and making sure that that knowledge is sort of cascading down through your organization as effectively as possible. I really appreciated that in the book, Katie, you talk about that clarity shows, shows care and actually kind of draws that line. Dig into that just a little bit more. What are some, some more ways that as church leaders, we can share 
here's our theological conviction and you leave space for different theological convictions on women in leadership and the way that that's lived out. You explain many of those in the book, but specifically on clarity, what are some really practical ways that we can be clear? How do we actually define that line in a way that's helpful, not hurtful? Yeah, I think a lot of times churches have good intentions about bringing clarity to this topic, but this is a difficult topic. It is fairly controversial. It's not black and white in scripture. And so I really encourage church leaders to not necessarily feel like they need to wave a big banner or come down hard on it or, you know, make a big, you know, six week sermon series on it or, you know, send an email out to the whole church. It's not something that has to have like angst with it or even rush it. But there are a lot of things that church leaders can do uh, to bring clarity to it. I think definitely this is the kind of topic that has to start from the top of the leadership ranks. And so if this isn't clearly defined in your church, if you're not connected with a denomination in which this is sort of like a part of your statement of belief, or it's something that maybe has been a little bit more in the senior pastor's head, but no one else is really clear on where he stands, you know, that would kind of dictate where you start with it. But the top of the leadership ranks in your your team, with your elders or board of directors, that has to be clarified up top first. But once that is clarified, I think there's a lot of really easy, practical things that leaders can do to sort of help enculturate that down the line at your church. First of all, if you believe that women are are uh, invited to be able to lead up front, the weekend service is a great platform to begin teaching our congregation through modeling that women can make announcements, that women, they might be able to team teach or even solo teach. They might be able to, uh, if they're leading a ministry, you could bring a ministry leader up, even if she's in something like running the greeter team, have her come up and give uh, an invitation to join the greeter team or help her pray over the offering. But anything that highlights the women who are doing the things that you would want women to be doing. That is such a powerful statement to the women in your congregation. Because like I said, it's so easy for women to assume, especially if they don't see anyone on the weekend service, it's easy for them to assume that women aren't allowed to do things if they're not actually presented as examples in front of them. So I really encourage church leaders to be intentional about how you leverage the weekend service to model what it is you want women to be doing. The second thing is to really take the time to talk with the female leaders in your congregation. So if you see a woman uh, who has great leadership potential, she is a magnet for other people, you know, when she walks in a room, people kind of notice because she brings energy and joy and all those kinds of qualities you would look for in a leader. Maybe she teaches a Sunday school or a small group and people love going to it. You just see a lot of capacity and potential in her, especially if maybe she has a career outside of of the home or outside of church that you know she's successful in as a leader, that is a great woman to start talking to about using her leadership gifts in the church. And I want to encourage leaders to do two things when they talk to someone like that. The first is to just really humbly ask, what is it like to be a female leader in our church? And try to just really listen to what she's saying. I have a feeling most of us would be surprised at the journey that a lot of our women leaders who have great capacity experience in our churches. The kind of 
maybe negative feedback they get, the kind of resistance they experience, the questions they have, the ways that they think that maybe they're not welcome or not invited into circles. It can be a hard thing as a leader to really listen to that kind of feedback. But if you want to take this topic on and you want to help empower more women in your congregation, it's a really powerful question to ask. But then secondly, to talk to her about her gifting and where she would like to use those gifts in your church and encourage her to Uh, go for it, to invite her into leadership. Maybe you have a small group you want her to lead or a staff role that you want her to consider or a volunteer director role that you want her to consider and help encourage her to consider doing that and imagine herself doing those roles. One of the research pieces I talk about in the book that I think is really powerful for all of us to know about is that men and women look at job or leadership opportunities totally different. So if there's a job description, uh, whether it's for a paid staff role or a volunteer role, whatever it's for, when a guy looks at a job description and he looks at the list of qualifications and what the job entails, if he feels 60% confident that he can do a good job at that role, he will apply for the job and figure that he'll just learn it as he goes or he'll you know ask questions along the way or someone will train him, but he will will apply and feel confident taking the job. A woman, on the other hand, when she looks at a job description like that, she needs to feel 100% confident of every single thing on the job description, or she won't even apply. She won't even put her name in the hat. And wow. so many times in churches where, you know, recruiting small group leaders or someone to uh, run the weekend experience team or work with our new guest connections, and we're wondering why women aren't applying, but it's probably because they are self-selecting out because they feel like they aren't qualified. They don't think they'll do a good enough job. They won't be perfect from day one. But most of us know when we do a new job or a new volunteer role, we don't know how to do it until we learn how to do it. And so that gap right there, that's the bridge that I want to help leaders cross. And so it's really important to talk to great female leaders in your congregation and encourage them to consider applying for roles or even offering the job and helping them see why you think they would be a great at this job, the leadership qualities you already see in them that you'd like them to bring into your ministry and help them kind of imagine themselves, encourage them that you'll train them to do it. They don't have to be great at it from the beginning. So those are a few different things that I just think can be really helpful to leaders as they try to encourage female leaders to bring their gifts to the table in their ministry. That's so helpful because many times we're perpetuating a system that accidentally, as males, brings more damage then it does good. And you talk about many things within the book like that. I appreciated both the research and then the personal stories. Um, both of those I thought were so helpful and so practical. Um, as I read through the book, I heard that kind of this theme, bridging the gap. And you talk about several gaps that we need to bridge and even how that was part of your big why uh, behind writing this book. Can you talk about some of those gaps that we need to kind of jump over uh, and ditch in the process of, uh, of thinking about how females are given or not given opportunities to lead within the local church? The book actually started because I was working with some leadership uh, teams, some church leadership teams at a couple conferences and a couple networking events. And I actually had some senior and executive male pastors come and ask me what could they do better to help the women leaders on their team. And I, the first time it happened, I was just so amazed that there was this group of guys, I called them the good guys, you know, just out there really thinking ahead, trying to uh, use all the leadership capacity in their church. They had these younger female leaders on their leadership team that they wanted to sort of move 
moved through the pipeline, but they were running into some blocks and they didn't know what to do about it. And so they sat down and chatted with me. And um, this actually happened three times over a three or four month period. And it's what gave me the idea to write the book because these great guy leaders, these pastors, godly men were trying to do a great job with these women leaders. But the things they were doing, some of them were really great, but some of them actually weren't that helpful. And so that kind of gap between these great guy leaders trying to sort of reach down and help these female leaders develop and what these women uh, were actually experiencing from the leaders, this chasm or gap was really concerning to me because it just felt like we were leaving so much leadership capacity on the table. So a few of the examples of things they were doing is uh, one of the most common that I that I see a lot is there is a bright female leader. Usually this is a younger leader who's kind of lower in the experience uh, rung on the ladder, but they are it is just a sharp female leader. And she has capacity, she has energy, she's magnetic, she's a great communicator. And so to help her learn ministry, they bring her on the staff team, which is what you do with anyone in your congregation that you want to groom into ministry leadership. But they almost always bring her on as the executive assistant to the senior pastor. And in their mind, I appreciate what they're trying to do. They're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to put this girl in the senior pastor's office. She's going to get the inside scoop on how ministry works, on how on how I do leadership decisions. She'll get to know all of these great people and begin networking. But the problem is that role is not a ministry role. And it's also like a direct ministry role, pastoral kind of role. And it's also not a leadership role. It is a supportive role. And and although that person might get to see and meet and hear a lot of things, when you're the person setting up the coffee before the meeting and you're the person taking notes and you're the person sending out the calendar invites, you're learning great administrative skills, but you're not learning great leadership skills. When you want to groom any leader, you need to give them leadership. So what she really needs is to be put in charge of a bunch of small groups. What she really needs is to be put in charge of a bunch of leadership teams, like volunteer teams, or a bunch of events in which she has to work cross-functionally across all ministries and rally people and communicate and hold people accountable. That's the leadership team experience she needs, not being in high-level conversations. Because it not only cripples her from not having great leadership capacity and developing that. But it also gives, especially a young leader, a really false sense that they know how ministry works because they've worked in a high level office. But if you don't know what it's like Saturday night when half your volunteer team calls off sick and you have to pull off Sunday morning services, whatever your job is, children's ministry, worship ministry, the parking lot ministry, whatever it is, that is where real ministry uh, sort of resiliency is born. And if we don't give great female leaders those same experiences like we give the guy leaders, we're really crippling them long-term. They become very uh, administrative. They hand out a lot of edicts. They have a lot of big agendas for people, but they don't know how to come alongside people and motivate them and recruit and vision cast and all those things that actually takes you places in volunteer-based ministry. So helpful. And uh, it's just occurring to me, as I'm hearing you talk, you probably have so many horror stories uh, as you write this book of saying, man, I wish it would have been done that right way. This was so poor in the process. I'm sure you've heard a few of those, Katie. 
Oh, yeah. There's, you know, for the book, I actually uh, sent out a survey. I just sort of put it on on social media to see if I could get maybe 100 women to share some of their stories of growing up in ministry leadership. We ended up with over 1,200 people filling out the survey for the book. It was really amazing and just pointed to the fact that there are women and these stories that they have endured and the experiences that they have had and just how faithful and godly and patient and grace-filled they are to still be in ministry and still be at their local church, despite some of these kind of uh, demoralizing and demotivating experiences. I was just really impressed with them and really encouraged to try and help change the way we think about this because it's just there's no reason to really kind of keep these bad habits going. We have so many incredible women and we're in a generation where in uh, where we have more women who have greater education, more income earning power, more leadership experience, more giftedness that's been nurtured for longer in their growing up years. It's just we've never had so much capacity in our generation of women than we do right now. It just would be such a shame to leave any of that on the ministry table as we try to move our churches forward and reach more people with the love of God. Agreed. And I think there's so many practical things you point out here in this book. And, you know, even thinking about it, my wife is more educated than me and my mom is more educated than my dad. And those are really new things um, to be happening as we think through history. I think it's an exciting time to think about how we've literally left, like you say, ministry capacity on the table underutilizing yet the faithfulness of females. We say many times that without without women, like nothing would run in our churches. And yet that hasn't been a fair representation from the front uh, so much of the time. So just this is such a timely book for us, Katie. Uh, I loved your, in practice number five, you talked about being an other. You talked about three crucial relationships for females to be able to step into greater capacity and leadership, male mentors, male sponsors, and female coaches. Why are those three so crucial for developing women in leadership to have? One of the things that I think that's been hard in church ministry is it's hard for godly male pastors to know how to develop female leaders because we have this gender change. So we interpret information a little differently. Um, The way we process things, the way we grow into our leadership gifts is a little different. But we also want to be careful to the integrity side of things. And I'm a huge proponent of that in the book and in my personal life and in my ministry. So I don't want to take away from all of that. But these three roles, um, I wanted to sort of almost do a double click on what it meant to develop a female leader and give a little bit more concrete steps for men and women leaders who are trying to grow up female leaders. So the first one, is this idea of mentors. And the role of mentoring, uh, we talk a lot about in the church, especially when it comes to spiritual mentoring. But in this context, I'm talking about leadership mentoring. And the reality is a 90% of the leadership roles in American, well, actually global churches right now are male. And so for a female to grow in leadership, she is going to have to have a male mentor because there isn't a lot, there aren't a lot of female leaders to mentor her. So mentors tend to be more relational. It tends to be an aspect of supervising. So it tends to be someone who's more directly related to a growing leader, someone who's probably seeing them in their leadership performance, can give them feedback. It's usually a relational role where there's a lot of conversation together about what's going on inside your head. What are you trying to accomplish here? Let me give you some feedback. What do you think about that feedback? It's kind of part coaching, part relationship, part accountability. That's what mentoring is. 
Sponsoring, however, is one of the things that is really undeveloped for female leaders. Sponsoring is this idea that I might not even have a super close relationship with you directly, but as someone in leadership, I'm in higher level leadership conversations in my church or organization, I want to sponsor female leaders in those conversations. So if you have a, a, let's say you have a a woman who's serving in student ministries at, if you're a multi-site church at one of your campuses or leading one of your ministries, a sponsor is someone who's in higher level leadership conversations talking about where our next campus might launch. And I'm familiar enough with all of our leaders, including the women, that when we're having that conversation, talking about who could take different departments and who would be on the launch team and who might be up for this new project, I know enough about the leadership that I can put those women's names in the hat. I can throw their names out in the conversation. I can talk about them from an educated standpoint. She's done this. She's done that. She's very passionate about this. I've seen her on stage. I've seen her with a leadership team. Like I know enough about her that I can advocate for her, champion for her, or sponsor her when it comes to new opportunities. The reason that's so important is because it's very hard for women to sort of get into the informal networking that happens in leadership conversations. So most of us love to mentor and hang out with people like us. And so Sky senior executive campus ministry leaders and pastors will automatically kind of get to know the young male pastoral leaders on their team because there's affinity. They see themselves in that, you know, they see a younger version of themselves in them. It's easy to chit chat. Those guys are have much more confidence even approaching those higher level leaders for conversation if they're the same gender. So it's hard for women to break into those sort of social uh, kind of organic relationships. When it comes comes time to deciding who's going to be a part of a project or a new task force or a new hire, those guys you know are the ones that you tend to nominate. And so great leaders need to think of themselves not as who do I know, but who am I sponsoring? How do I help make diversity happen? And it doesn't have to be just women. It could be any minority status. It could be ethnic. It could be socioeconomic. It could be people from other countries. It could be different ages if you're trying to get more uh, younger leaders on your team or you're trying to get more elder on your team, wherever your church is sort of lacking diversity, those are the ways we can sponsor different people in those conversations. And then the third one is coaching. And for this, I really advocate female coaching because there are some things I, in the book, I kind of make a claim that there's about 15% of leadership that really is helpful to have from someone who's the same gender as you. So almost all of leadership really transcends gender. It's much more about personality and gifting and style, but about 15% really is unique. And it has to do more with how do I navigate the more personal sides of my life in leadership. So Like as a mom, there are things that I'm thinking about that are just kind of different than what a dad might be thinking about or someone who doesn't have kids. It might be um, things that are related to my gender, like how do I travel with a group of guys and maintain our integrity, but at the same time not abdicate all of those relationships or the social things. Uh, There are things that I might do as a woman, like if I get really frustrated, I might start to cry in a meeting, which tends to totally throw guys off. So how do I curb that? How do I navigate that? If that 
happens to me? What do I do to kind of bring peace to that situation? Those are things that female coaches can help us process through. Plus, there are things that I can say as a female coach to some younger or even not even like younger in age, but younger in their leadership ministry leaders that guys just can't say. I can call them on the clothes that they're wearing. I can call them on their pride that tends to be masked a little differently in a female leader than a male leader. I can kind of call out their insecurities or uh, the sticky floor, which I talk about in the book, those things that they might be spiritualizing, saying no to something when really it's just their insecurity talking. Those are things that a female coach can really bring to a growing female leader um, that really female leaders need all three of these roles. They need mentors, they need sponsors, and they need coaches. I think if we can uh, really orient ourselves to equipping women with all three of those, it will be the trifecta that creates a wheelhouse of development that can really accelerate the growth of the female leaders on your team. I love that. And particularly the sponsor piece of that. That that was a new term to me in that lens of saying, who do you sort of in proxy, who else could you represent in this meeting, be thinking in a different lens? Because every single church that I know of and work with, we're saying we need to grow in diversity in this area. And like you said, maybe it's younger leaders, older leaders, leaders of color, leaders from particular background, leaders from within the neighborhood, and of course, here for female leaders. So I love that. I thought that was so practical, KD. Let's talk a little bit about safety. Practice number six is creating an environment of safety. Get really practical with, with us, especially to church leaders. Church leaders listening, how can we create an environment of safety for women not only to survive, but to thrive as leaders? One of the things that I think most of us subscribe to is something called the Billy Graham rule, which was based out of Billy Graham and his team back in 1948 when they were touring in their evangelism crusades. And the media was spending a lot of time uh, with evangelists because it was a really big time, in the, especially in the United States, where evangelists were going around and they were getting thousands of people. And America had really just never seen revivals like this. But some of Billy Graham's counterparts were not keeping to sort of the moral codes of a believer. They were having affairs. They were stealing money. They were stealing people from churches. They were just doing things um, really uh, that Billy Graham didn't want to be associated with. And so they came up with this Billy Graham rule, which actually covered four areas. One was they never wanted to inflate their attendance numbers because the media was catching pastors, you know, doing pastoral math where, you know, 500 people come and they say it was nearly a, a thousand people, you know, that kind of thing. So Billy Graham and his team dedicated to always reporting really accurate numbers. The second was to always uphold churches. So they always made sure that they worked through local churches and never kind of stole people from local ministries. They only wanted to connect people and communities to local churches. They wanted to make sure they were above board with their finances, particularly never sort of um, utilizing the emotional pull that was happening when someone was making a spiritual decision. So they always did their fundraising before they showed up to a city. So they would never be tempted to take a love offering or ask for money when all they really wanted to do was have a spiritual decision that people could make, not a financial one. And then the last one uh, was about women and just making sure that they were never in a, a spot where the media could take a picture of them and accuse them of having an affair. So they just changed changed their practice to never being alone with a woman, like in a restaurant. Up until that time, they had met, especially female donors or leaders of ministries, they had met in restaurants or, you know, rode in a car together to a conference or one of the events, Um, but they just changed their practices so that the media could never take a picture of them 
and publish it and accuse them of any sexual impropriety. I actually wish pastors still subscribe to all four parts of the Billy Graham rule because I That's think right. our ministries would be a lot healthier for it. That's uh, right. So, the, the pastoral math one especially. Yeah. <laughs> I think several people listening are convicted right now. Your math is you know, multiplied by at least four when you talk about your Easter services or whatever. <laughs> so, um, so, but those those practices from Billy Graham have been really helpful. They're, they show up in ways that are very practical and very helpful. Things like most churches I know put windows in all of their offices they always make sure they um, only travel like men travel with men and women travel with women. It even plays down into our ministries where women disciple women, men disciple men. All of those practices are really great. The challenge for me about it, though, is that we don't live in 1948 anymore. And so those practices about not traveling in a car or being alone with someone of the opposite sex in a restaurant really doesn't help us in both a digital age and also in an LGBTQ age. And so for me, you know, I see these pastors and they are very careful about never traveling with a woman, which I think is great, but they're traveling with their young pastoral intern. And so they're riding in a car together and they're sharing a hotel room because of cost and they're eating all their meals together. And I just think, you know what, in today's landscape, that practice is no longer above reproach either. And I know many of us kind of can live in a ministry bubble where it's hard to imagine someone accusing a pastor of a homosexual relationship, but that is just as devastating and will be. And I don't think it's long before those accusations start floating around the church. And so I want us to rethink the Billy Graham rule, not in a in an effort to get rid of it, but in an effort to really expand it to be more protective of all of the relationships that we have. So some of one of the big suggestions I make is to um, change one of our practices in leadership development, which is this phrase of always taking someone along with you. So most of us know that when we go to the hospital or go to do a funeral, we should take someone with us in ministry. And so that way uh, you can talk with the person along the way, kind of have a mentoring or a coaching moment on the way to the hospital. They can watch you minister to a family, or you might even share some of the load and do it with them. You can debrief on the way back. It's a wonderful leadership development principle. We should all be doing that. I just think we should expand the rule to be always take two people with you. So always taking either two guys or two girls or a guy and a girl and just leveraging the rule of three people. Because that automatically builds in some extra accountability and trust. You not only are now nurturing one person's leadership, you're actually doubling your efforts in the same amount of time. It opens up the door to be able to take women along with you because many times that rule of taking someone along with you combined with the Billy Graham rule basically meant that women weren't ever invited along for those mentoring moments. And that's a real challenge to women growing in leadership because not only are they not getting the training that those moments provide, but they're missing the relational connectivity that happens with a senior leader when they're taken along for those moments. And that's really where that sponsoring part comes in, because now this higher level leader knows this younger leader, can advocate for them and sponsor them in conversations. So when we change our rule to always taking two people along with us, we're maximizing our time, we're doubling our efforts, plus we're actually helping two younger leaders get to know one another, we're building some peer accountability, and it really sort of takes the pressure off the intimacy that can happen in one-on-one relationships. So that's just one of the practical ways. We have quite a few in the book of different ways that churches or leaders are kind of tackling this subject. Um, But I'm really convicted about this and really um, inspired by it because the last two churches I've actually consulted through processes of infidelity among their pastoral staff member 
None of them technically violated the Billy Graham rule. It was all done through social media accounts and fake email accounts where these emotional affairs that eventually led to something physical took place. And I just think, you know what, if we're not taking on more of the heart issues, more of our leadership practices and changing the things that we think are keeping us safe when we're not, we're really going to um, have a rude awakening when something big happens on our church staffs. And we can actually prevent it now if we think differently about these practices. Yeah, I appreciate you expanding and I think even deepening our thinking on that, that it used to be just a rule. And now you're saying what's below that and what's below that. And just things that I didn't think about. I didn't think about how we were stifling women uh, within the leadership development opportunity. But as you say, bring two along, 2x the leadership capacity, maybe even more than that. Give us a few practical next steps. If we realize there's a gap between what we say we believe about women leading within our church and what we're actually calling or inviting women to lead. What are just a couple of practical next steps that every church leader can do to help bridge this gap, Katie? Well, I think one of the first is to really, as a leader, be curious about where this conversation is at in your church. Uh, you can certainly uh, go outside maybe your normal relationships and ask some female leaders in your congregation. I think I mentioned this earlier, you know, what is it like to be a female leader here? And then listen to their answer and see if there's any misconceptions between what your theology is and what she thinks she's allowed or supposed to do or not do because that disconnect I can almost guarantee you is there and the more you can close that gap the more leadership capacity energy but also the less sideways energy you'll waste in your actual congregation so that would be the first one is to just get curious and go looking to see if there's some misunderstandings or discrepancies in that that might be holding your not only your female leaders back but really all your church leadership back uh, the second, I think, is to take a look at your weekend services and do a little bit of an audit. How many women do you have on the platform? How many women are you highlighting in your services? How many times are you talking about women in the Bible and Mother's Day doesn't count? And so I've just been amazed at how many times I've sat in a weekend message. And now that I've done research for this book, I'm even more aware of it. Uh, we'll read through scripture and just sort of, you know, skip down to verse 10. And we've skipped over the one woman who's mentioned in that section of scripture. And I just really encourage pastors, please just don't leave them out. You don't have to teach a whole sermon on women if you don't want to, but please don't take them out of scripture because there are women sitting in your congregation who need to know they're represented in God's word, who need to know that they can find themselves in the pages of scripture, that there are models and examples and lives that they can look at to learn from that aren't just male. And at the same time, it's really important for the guys in your congregation to realize there are women in God's word and that women have a voice and a perspective that God often uses to kind of regardless of your theology, women show up in every theology about this. It's just how they show up and where their limitations are. And so if you're kind of just keeping women out totally, you're actually not following your theology at all. I can almost guarantee it. So those are a couple practical steps that would really allow you to look at the, uh, how that's being perceived on the congregation side. But then on your staff team is start pulling some metrics. How many women do you have in ministry leadership roles? 
How many resources are you dedicating to ministries for women? So even if you're in a very conservative theological environment where women are really have their most potential in women's ministry and children's ministry, I would really challenge you to look at the hard metrics in your ministry budget and in your HR reports. Are you paying your directors and your pastors the same, if they're overseeing the same amount of people, the same amount of volunteers, if they're having the same impact on your ministry, or are the women staff members earning significantly less? Are they licensed for ministry? If it doesn't violate your theology, can you have a women, like a women's director of small groups who oversees all women's Uh, small groups, are they missing out on a huge salary bump because they're not licensed for ministry, even though they're meeting all of the qualifications? Is it the same for your children's pastor or children's ministry director? Same for your uh, women's ministry director? All of those roles have implications. And so you want to make sure you're paying people fairly, that you have enough women in ministry roles, that you're hitting your metrics. If you're actually trying to get diversity on your teams, the metrics you're looking for that show representation is 30%. So if you want women in ministry leadership to be represented, you're looking for a 30% female representation. So again, it changes on your theology, but if you um, are looking for that, just don't count your administrative clerical staff because that's not the leadership roles we're looking for. We're looking for actually ministry leadership, small group leaders in your leadership pipeline, people who are taking your leadership classes, making sure that that's the representation and the numbers you're looking for all the way up the ranks. Awesome. Well, thanks for the practical nature of this book. I think it was it's part inspirational, part call to the carpet, and we need both of those. So, so grateful for your posture within this book. Guys, I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of Developing Female Leaders. It's part of the Leadership Network Next series. Katie, you're doing some great work out there. We want to shift uh, to kind of last question. We always try to get personal. We believe, we're crazy enough to believe that you could actually go the long haul in leadership without losing your soul. We want people to stay healthy Um, as they continue to have an impact. So what are some really practical ways, Katie, that you stay healthy as you continue to live and lead as God has designed you? Well, that is a very important question. And I thank you guys for actually having a podcast about that because I think it's really underrepresented and underdeveloped in our leadership ranks. Uh, For me personally, I've had a unique journey in this because uh, one of the reasons I went back to work full time after having uh, my son sooner than I thought is my husband has dealt with a lot of chronic issues and health issues. And um, I've actually had to be sort of the solo breadwinner for many years of our marriage and our family, which um, especially as a mom, I think had a different angle to it and uh, trying to balance all of those pieces, being a parent, being a full-time caretaker and serving in executive level leadership in my uh, church ministry was very taxing. And so it forced me to really dig deep in my own personal soul health practices and the way I lived that out in my ministry. And so one of the most important, which I know you all talk about all the time, is really just obeying the Lord in Sabbath. And uh, for me, I think of this a lot like the tithe where we give God the first of our money and and trust him with the rest of the 90%. For me, Sabbath feels like that. I'm trusting him with the first day of my week. For me in ministry, especially that was on a Saturday because Sunday was a full-on work day. And so for me, taking Saturday and just um, not having an agenda for myself, being able to really just enjoy being fully present with my family. Um, For me, it meant not getting out of my yoga pants and not getting into my car as much as possible because I spent a lot of time in my car commuting and taking my kid around and you know going to ministry events. And so um, for me, I think I had to really redefine what that looked like 
like as a mom and someone sort of uh, leading her family for a season um, to give myself permission to uh, not feel like I couldn't do anything because that wasn't possible, but to be able to do it without rush or agenda. So that was my first one. Um, I think the second one is I'm just very dedicated to my quiet time in the morning with the Lord and making sure that I have that connection regardless of what's on my plate for today. And then third, just making sure that I'm reconnecting with the Lord throughout the day. So kind of that daily office mentality. Um, For me, I always tried to take the long walk to my next meeting, even if it meant that I wasn't as early as I wanted to be, or maybe I wasn't as prepared as I wanted to be, but just trying to just in the course of walking and taking a deep breath and sort of reconnecting with God and re-giving myself over to Him, especially when things were very stressful or we had big projects going on or I was carrying a lot of leadership leadership burden, just making sure I was trying to abide with the Lord as much as possible. Um, And then being really great about my calendar, trying to have great boundaries, trying to make sure I scheduled my uh, vacations in early, trying to make sure I was parenting in the most impactful times of my kid's life. So that when they needed their mom the most, that's was what got put on my schedule first, and that shifts as your child grows. And so, just making sure I was um, making sure my priorities were in the right order, and just trusting that God, if I did that, God was going to you know take care of the rest and um, make sure that I was able to meet all the requirements that I had for the day or the year. Well, super practical. I always love hearing those at the end. It's just such a great way to end the podcast, uh, Katie. You're doing some incredible stuff. How can listeners con- connect? along with with what you're learning and what you're up to. Sure. Well, thank you. I am on social media on all the formats at Katie Cole, K-A-D-I-C-O-L-E, or you can stop by my website, K-A-D-I-C-O-L-E.com, katiecole.com. Well, Katie, thanks for having us. Guys, pick up a copy of Developing Female Leaders. I am loving it. I'm going to share it with especially the ladies on our team. I want to start discussions, and I'm particularly convicted about that conversation What is it like to lead here or to not be given the opportunity to lead here within our congregation, within our team? So many applications to this book. Katie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all that you're doing in the kingdom. Guys, what a great interview that was. You can just hear the passion, the inspiration in Katie's voice. I love her posture within the book because as we're listening to this, if you're a church leader, you're probably falling on all different lenses are all different lines when it comes to your view of females in leadership and maybe the roles that your church, your denomination, your tribe is comfortable with women having. And I'm confident that whatever side of the line you fall on, this is a helpful book because the issue here is actually calling people into the greatness that God has gifted them with and wired them for. This is such a helpful book. This is one of those books that I hope my daughter reads someday, if not soon. I hope my wife reads. I hope the ladies on our team read. And I hope the men around me listen to women like Katie. So this is so helpful. Just going to leave you with two quick challenges that Katie talked about. Number one, These challenges are just for males. Today, males listening, we need to be challenged with what Katie was talking about. Ask a few women in your congregation, what is it like to lead here? Ask a few of the women in your congregation, what is it like to lead here? Such a practical question. And secondly, ask this question, how can you mentor or sponsor female leaders? How can you mentor or sponsor female leaders. Guys, as always, we want to remind you it is possible to go the long haul 
to stay healthy, to lead well, and not lose your soul in the process. Guys, we're so grateful for you listening along and sharing. We're catching a lot of traction from you as you listen. Maybe it's summer and you're on a road trip. Maybe you uh, have had a great experience with the family. Maybe you're out walking your dog. Maybe you're making dinner. Whatever you're doing, we're so grateful that you would take time to invest in your leadership. Don't just listen along, but take your next right step to become more healthy so ultimately you can have a long-term impact. Guys, keep living and leading well. We will catch you on the next episode. Shine, shine, we focus so long.